0: Today, we are going to, uh, we are studying the last episode of our summer sermon series on the life of David, the king in the wilderness. I think nothing can be more dramatic and wilder than the last story in David's wilderness period than today's. Here in 1 Samuel chapter 30, we see David facing the greatest tragedy in his life so far. And we witness how he responded to the devastating tragedy with the faith and rescued everyone by God's providence and guidance. Here we see how faith works in midst of failures, frustrations, fatal despair, and even forsaken loyalty. It is my prayer that just as a day be found is a strength in God we also find our strength in God for this unprecedented pandemic and divided country so that we can once again glorify God's blessed name. So I divide today's story into three parts. Tragedy is a part one. Number two is a transition. And number three is a triumph. So tragedy, transition, and triumph. And I pray that we all read this story uh, existentially placing ourselves in that, uh, in the speaking of the Holy Spirit. So, first part, tragedy, Let's read uh, chapter thirty, and uh, let me read a uh, just first sentence and give you the background. David and his men reached Ziggler on the third day. So, today's story is a continuation of the last week's episode, where David and his band of brothers went to Afek as a uh, bodyguards of a Philistine king Akish, to fight against the Israelite. So let me show you the map. If you look at the map, do you find the Afek in the middle of that uh, 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 map? And today, they are coming back to their headquarter uh, all the way down south in Ziklag. So in Afek, David and his men, experienced a truth stranger than fiction. That was, they were, saved by the unexpected, surprising source, namely the distrust and protest of Philistine commanders. While David thought he was doomed in his scheme, he was delivered, surprisingly, from the final fate of his double agent by Philistine commanders. And so today, David and his men were coming back to the headquarters in Ziklag after three days. And we can imagine on the way back, they were so relieved. And they were laughing and joking with each other, saying, you know, uh, uh, joking about their, you know, lucky break, saying things like, uh, oh oh boy, it was so close. OMG, I never imagined that Philistine commanders could save us. God is wise. No, God isn't funny. Well, truly, God loves you. Our captain, our Lord, David, as long as we follow David, we will not run out of our lucky streak because God's favor is on our Lord. Now, with this background, let me read the rest of the story. So going back to chapter 30, verse 1. Now Amalekite had uh, raided the Negev and Ziggalak. They had uh, attacked the Ziklag and burned it, and had taken captive the woman and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached the Ziggalak, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men, Wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Zezareel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed distressed, because the men were talking of a stoning him. Each one was a bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. Now, David and his men returned to their headquarters. A greater crisis, a tragedy, was waiting for them. While they were gone, Amalekite raided Ziggalek and took away their family. Who are Amalekite? From the early days of Israel, Amalekite were enemies of Israel. When Moses and Israelites were passing through their land in Exodus chapter 17 to the promised land, They attacked the people of God viciously, unprovoked. They were cruel opportunists opportunists to other people, especially very violent to wicked people. So God commanded Saul to completely destroy Amalekite in 1 Samuel chapter 15, and Saul did not obey God fully. In today's story, Amalekites have done once again, they acted ruthlessly, plundering Zieglech, and Davis, you know, uh, uh adopted the city in Philistine and taking alive all the women and children of his men, including David's own two wives. It's like a human traffickers kidnap your wives and children. And the worst part of the tragedy was that it was your fault. It was your fault. Why was the tragedy David's fault? It was a David who took his people to Ziklag. We saw in chapter seventeen that David defected the Philistine instead of depending on God and in sovereign, you know, protection. Here David lived in Ziklag for a year and four months, and Amalekite. They are well aware of David's presence in Ziklag, and David and his men were also raiding Amalekite and others. If you remember, you know, uh, chapter 27, verse 8, Now David and his men went up and raided the uh, Gesherite and Gazaite and Amalekite. And when David attacked the area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took the sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes. Then he turned to Akish, the Philistine king, to report about his raid. The only difference... Between David and Amalekite was that David did not spare anyone his raid in order to keep his double agent cover before the Philistine king. While the Amalekite did not mind people knowing that they were in slave trade. They didn't kill anybody. Not because they are humane, but they are they are they are they're selling this uh, uh, people as a slave. So Today's tragedy is what we commonly say, what goes around, what, what, what goes around, comes around. What goes around, comes around. Here, we need to recognize this. God was allowing David to finally see the miserable failures of his own scheme in multiple dimensions, multiple dimensions. But we'll look at the two particular, you know, pain and, you know, failures and tragedy. First, David lost his family. Verse 5, David's two wives had been captured, A, A. Noam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of, Kamal, Nabal of Carmel. Verse 5 is almost identical of chapter 27, verse 3, David and his men settled in Goth with Achish, and David as two wives, Abinom of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. Many commentators think that a main reason for David's departure from territory of Judah to the land of a Philistine was because of his own family. To protect his family and the families of his increased community, David compromised his faith and trust in God and resorted to political exile. If David was a only David, was, David and only handful of men, they probably stayed in the land of Judah. But because his community is growing and Saul is after them, David thought I have to take them to a more uh, safer and secure and stable area. So it was a David who took them there. And today, this David's scheme completely shattered. The very ones that he wanted protected most were kidnapped. And he didn't know where they went or taken. It's a one thing to lose something precious. It's another thing to lose something precious because of yourself or your plan or your decision. It's my fault. This four words. Nothing more painful and more condemning than this four word. My, is my fault. It's my fault. David is facing his own self-condemnation here. 20 years ago, I heard that very cry, It's my fault. From a sister in my church, she was a core member of a church, and she had a younger sister who recently graduated from UC Berkeley. Her sister was struggling with a manic depression, and uh, this member of our church brought her sister, to, uh, sister thought that our church and our very strong small group ministry could help her. So after a year, her younger sister got better. And uh, uh, she, she was uh, happier, and finally she found a job. And before starting a new job, her younger sister decided to visit her relatives in South Korea. And when she asked her older sister whether she needed to take a uh, depression medicine or not, her older sister said, well, you've been managing yourself well without medication for several months now. Why don't you just... And then you will be there just a few weeks. Why don't you just go without and enjoy yourself? You're in vacation. A few weeks later, her younger sister committed a suicide. The first word from that older sister, me, was, Pastor Paul, it was my fault. It was my fault we had a long conversation about a fate of a Christians who committed suicide and I want us to know this clearly not all suiciders go to a hell as some dogmatic Roman Catholics or conservative Christians you know believe manic depression is a serious sickness like a cancer as a cancer kills person manic depression or some severe mental, mental, mental illness killed people. It's a different from God-denying and life-cursing suicide. So don't make a judgment on people's suicide and then, you know, their fate. Now, David and his men, they felt, they're feeling the heavy weight of self-condemnation. So they weep bitterly. Until their strength is out. But that's only beginning. David was uh, about to face another tragedy and crisis. That was condemnation of his uh, own followers. They were mad at David. When some people are in tragedy, their defense mechanism takes them over. It is a known awful human self-defense mechanism. That is uh, blaming others and making others a scapegoat of your problem. Isn't that what we see in our country right now? Conservatives blame progressives, you know, conspiracy, and pros- progressive, you know, condemn the conservatives' policy. You know, it's so easy to blame others. David was a greatly distressed, verse 6 says, Because their men, his men, were talking about stoning him. Because they were each one was a bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. And look here, just an hour ago they were joking with David and they were grateful to his leadership. Now they hate him more than anything. That's the human nature. Here, atoning, stoning David means uh, it is they are thinking about a communal trial and public execution done by their own community. Stoning means that everyone condemns David and everyone casts their stone to the guilty, the David. David had a mutiny and rebellion within his own community. And the majority of his community was about to be swayed by this very awful easy way out. So this crisis changed David all of a sudden from leadership to a liability. And here is a one lesson that I think everyone who is in leadership position, whether it's a family or work or in the church must recognize that leadership comes with much scrutiny including some unfair criticism and awful misunderstanding and sometimes unfair judgment. Being a leader or a servant leader is only possible by God's grace. So what is a God's grace to David here? What is a God is teaching David here? God is teaching David that, David, I am your shield and protection not your followers. Their loyalty to you is so fickle, so fragile, but my faithfulness is a firm like a rock and I'm a true refuge to you. You need to come back to me and you need to start with me again. And that's the first lesson of today's story. The tragedy of a life tells us go back to God, come back to God. And by grace of God, that's what David did. The second point of our story is a transition of a faith. So let me read a verse 6 again. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in his spirit because his sons and daughters. But David found the strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the effort. Abiathar thought, brought it to him, and David inquire of the Lord. Inquire of the Lord. Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them. God answered, "You will surely overtake them and succeed in rescue." The key verse in today's story is of verse six. David was greatly distressed but David found the strength in the Lord his God In the most painful and perilous time of his life so far David took his problems to God David took his problem to God in the most depressing and devastated crisis David made a transition of a faith from the horizontal dimension to vertical dimension The real faith is a faith that seeks and sees God above and beyond our situation and our emotions. Let me repeat that. True faith is see God above and beyond my circumstance and my feeling. And here, the narrator is really emphasizing David's faith. You know, we didn't read much about uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 28. There we actually saw Saul in a very similar crisis like uh, David. Just like uh, David was surrounded by troublemakers in chapter 30, chapter 28, Saul was oppressed uh, all around by the Philistines and their, their, their coming battle and the little hope of victory. But where did Saul, King Saul, take his problems? He didn't take to God, to a spiritual medium. And he, you know, through the medium, he called his, you know, old pastor Samuel from heaven. And then, you know, if you look at the chapter 28, verse 15, the Samuel said to the soul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And then there's Saul said, I am in great distress. I am in great distress. In Hebrew text, it's the same word in the chapter 30, verse 6. David was greatly distressed. And then later, verse 28, Saul said his strength was gone. Now, why didn't God answer Saul? You know what? First of all, Saul killed God's priest, Abiathar's father Ahimelech, for no good reason. And that's why Ahimelech, um, uh, Abiathar, fled to David with a priestly effort which has Urim and Thurim to discern the God's will. And so, he never repented anything before God. Throughout Saul's life, Saul always sought God to use him, not to be used by him. He always, you know, he, he always sought God to use him. Saul saw his kingship not as a God's calling, but more like his own right, his own creation. Basically, Saul treated God like a genie, a powerful, divine, magical servant to, meet his, you know, to satisfy his, his wishes and whims. That's why God was silent to Saul. And with the God's silence, Saul sought spiritual medium and everything else. At the end, his strength was gone. In contrast, David found the strength in in his strength in great distress in God, because his a faith in God. Regardless, this texts uh, reading this text together intensifies the like, <laughs> The contrast between two anointed kings here. Saul's actions prove beyond the question that he was, he has become unsuitable as a king, while David's actions will illustrate again why he will become the ideal king of Israel. The key word in key sentence today, chapter 30, verse 6: David found his strength in the Lord. His God, the key word today is His. His. The full significance of strength is in the phrase that uh, David found his strength in the Lord, his God. That means David's strength is God. You know, narrator added, not just that David found the strength in the Lord, the Yahweh, but in his God. In order to stress the personal relationship between Yahweh and David, Saul's weakness as God's king must be seen ultimately in this light. He has a no-faith-based personal relationship with Yahweh. In his moment of utter despair, he is incapable of relying on God for deliverance because he has no relationship, personal relationship with God. And This story of David finding his strength in the Lord his God is so important to all of us. It's not enough to just believe in God about great things that God has done in the Bible. You have to make the God story your story. Today's, you know, this little phrase, David found his strength in the Lord his God reminds me of a famous conversion story of, John Wesley, the founder of a Methodist church, so-called, uh, in his so-called Gates uh, experience. John Wesley was born and raised in a very godly family. His father, Samuel Wesley, was a pastor of an Anglican church, very faithful and well-respected. And John Wesley's mother, Susanna Wesley, was, you know, so-called one of the three most godly or, you know, pious you know Christian mothers in history. And Susanna Wesley was a woman of a great spiritual wisdom and discipline and holiness. So John Wesley grew up in a holy family in a way. And he went to Oxford University. And even in Oxford University, he formed a Holy Club, quote unquote holy, he's a Christian, you know, campus ministry. He called, he founded, he called it Holy Club. And he practiced the spiritual discipline very methodically. That's where the he got the nickname later Methodist. He thought he really believed in God. And then later, after you know all this theological training he came to America as a missionary, colonial American missionary. He came to Georgia, Savannah, Georgia. And there, on the way to, you know, uh, crossing the, uh, coming to America, the ship experienced a very scary storm. And John Wesley, he was scared to death because he thought he was dying. And somehow, he was uh, fearful to meet Almighty Holy God, and that's at the same time in that ship, he found a group of Christians, very kind of radical Christians called the Moravians. This is a descendant of a radical Protestants of a sixteenth-century Reformation, and they were praising God. They were they are not uh, uh, they are not intimidated or scared by that scary storm a bit. They're actually praising God as if they were welcoming the storm, and John Wesley was stunned by the difference of a faith. What made these people are so confident about their faith, and I'm not. So that was a big, with a big question. John Wesley came to America, and uh, he had a miserable missionary life. That I'll tell you in the future. He failed horribly as a missionary he actually kicked out of his church as a pastor. It's almost a comedic, hilarious, you know, failure. And when he returned to England, he decided to check it out more about the Moravian Christians gathering. And fortunately, John Wesley, he wrote a a daily diary journal every single day, and we had uh, the volumes of his uh, diary. And so I'm actually quoting his uh, diary. This diary comes from May 24th, 1738. And by the way, May 24th, Methodists call the John Wesley's Day, and every year they celebrate the May 24th. So, quote, his diary comes this. I think it was about 5 in the morning I opened my Bible on this word. They are given unto us exceeding great precious promise, even that ye should be partakers of a divine nature. That's 2 Peter chapter 1, 4. So after that having a devotion on the first 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, uh, John Wesley went out. But before he went out, he opened the Bible again and they quickly read the Mark 12.34. Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. you know, that's what Jesus crucified the Lord. So t- you know, uh, uh, told the, the robber, the, the the you know. The 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 robber who repented later, but anyway. And then in the evening, he said, "I went to unwillingly to society, Moravian missionary community in the Aldersgate Street, and where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans." So, Preacher was not even preaching from the Bible. He was reading preface to Book of Romans about a quarter before nine. John Wesley even remembers time. While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through the faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. I, Christ alone, for salvation an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, not the sins of the world, my sins, even mine, and saved me, not just the world, save me from the law of sin and death. There, John Wesley recognized whatever as Christ has done. It's not just the world. He's not a savior of the world. He is God is Jesus is uh, his Savior. And all of a sudden, he realized that God he confessed is no longer just God of his parents, God of his church, God of whatever you know, Christian theology believes. It's a uh, his God. And that understanding, that realization warmed his heart strangely. That God loved me so much. That he gave his only begotten son, that I shall not perish but have eternal life. All of a sudden, John 3.16 became God's you know, promise to him personally. That's the faith. Christian faith without assurance of a salvation. This is uh, a personal assurance of a relationship with God. It's not authentic biblical faith. If you are not sure about your salvation, you need to really know God. And we invite you to Cornerstone Bible Study, our first Bible study in the church, and other Bible study in the church. Here, our commentator says David became a historical illustration of the truth of Apostle Paul teaches and urges in Philippian church. That is, Paul said in the Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. When you have a faith in God, that faith make us work. Faith and work cannot be separated because when we have When we have a faith with God, we recognize God working in us, in me, to will and act according to his good purpose. You know, believing God is not just, you know, Jesus died for me, so I can go to heaven more than that. Of course, that's the faith. That's the promise of God. That is, I began to follow Jesus here and I experienced heaven in here with Jesus because heaven is all about presence of God in Christ. So, when you believe in God, you begin to really work out your faith with fear and trembling. So, as David found his strength in God, his God, as he began to believe in God, David began his rescue mission with a certainty and with a, with a, with a conviction, without hesitation, with a zero, with a, with a zero focus, you know, with a, with a, with a this sharp focus, David goes after Amalekite. Now let's look at the third and final part, the triumph. So verse 9, David and his men, 600 men, with him came to Basel Valley, where some stayed behind. Two hundred of them were too exhausted to cross the valley, but David and the other four hundred continued the pursuit. Now, let me tell you that the uh, Basel Valley was a. Uh, uh, t- let me show the map. Can you show the map here? Basel Valley. Yes. If you look the down there, do you see the uh, Ziegelach and then go a little the, the blue letter, the Bessel, you know Brook? Yes, Bessel Brook was about 26 miles from Ziegelach, and Davis' men they marched about 66 miles from Affect the top to the Ziegelach for three days. So last four days, they marched about 90 miles. Over ninety miles on foot, and especially the last twenty-six miles was especially fast-paced because they want to find out their their law their kidnap family. Now, coming back, this so two hundred men they went so fast that two hundred men couldn't take any more step. You know, have you had an experience? You want to run one, which is just one most. Probably June can tell us about that. June is a marathoner. So ask Jun Choi about his first you know, marathon experience. It's a really, you know. This this 200 men, they remind me of a great, you know, the scene in the great Western. Actually, those of you new to the Dallas or haven't seen this movie, you need to watch this, you know, Western movie. True grit. True grit. Because the... Uh, uh, it happened in this area, True Grid. So you haven't seen True Grit, You have to watch it because a lot of uh, you know uh, the local names is around our is our it's our area here north border of uh, Texas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. In the True Grid, there was seen that where Jeff Bridge, the character, you know, he is uh, what is uh, the Texas uh, what is that the uh, uh, ranger. The, the ranger or whatever b- bounty hunter, the rooster cockburn, he was carrying his client, the fourteen years old girl Haley Steinfeld, you know, uh, who was bit by a, a, a rattlesnake in his arms, and he's galloping his horse to save her life, and then and then little bit and then few hours later, horse was totally exhausted and collapsed, and now he's running with her in his arms. And he keeps running, and it's dark at night. And then soon, in the distance, he sees a glimpse. It's a, a gl- you know, he sees a, a flickering light of a small, you know, locked cabin. And there, he takes out the, his pistol and fire the pistol and letting people know that there's somebody here in great need, and he collapsed. That's the picture I have here. So David and his men... 200 of them couldn't go farther. So David left them on Beza Valley, went further south. So let's continue with the verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the field. Verse 11. And brought him to David. And they gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of the cake of a pressed figs and the two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived. For he had not eaten any food or drink, a drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, Who do you belong to? Where do you come from? He said, I am an Egyptian, the slave of Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of Karathite and some territory belonging to the Judah and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David asked him, "Can you lead me down to this raiding party?" He answered, "Swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I will take you down to them." He let David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside eating, drinking, reveling because of a great amount of a plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until Evening of the next day, and none of them got away except the 400 young men who rode off on uh, camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekite had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herd, and his men drove them ahead of other life, start saying that this is a David's plunder. Finally, David and his band of brothers located at Amalekite and they rescued their family. Here the narrator tells us details about how David found the camp of the abductors, the Amalekite. And this gives us two important teaching points. One, first of all, we need to notice something very important here. David's rescue of his family and family of his men was possible because he first rescued a dying Egyptian on the road. Had David and his men ignored this helpless Egyptian on the pretext of their emergency? We are not sure how much longer it would have taken David to find their families. The Egyptian slave here was a God-sent GPS to David. David delayed his rescue, but this Egyptian slave gave them a direct way to find the Amalekite. Here, it is a sovereign truth. We learn that God often and sometimes send an angel, his angel, in the form of a dying, needy person to us. When we serve the needs of others, God meets our needs. When we first meet the need of others, God meets our need. From this, we have people made an old saying, we are doing well by doing good. This is a well-known Jewish saying that we are doing well by doing good. Doing good to others is ultimately doing good to ourselves. We reap the benefit of our own kindness to others. That's the you know, important lesson here. And I must emphasize it here. For us to seek and reach out to BIP, is it is good for our lost friend and lost child of God, but it's, it's going to reward us more than anything else. When we become a part of God's rescuing party, let me tell you, we will be more blessed. Sometimes I feel like we need that bless, blessing as much as the rescued. The other important lesson comes from, this, uh, com- comes from a length conversation between David and Egyptian slave. David asked him, Who do you belong to? Where do you come from? And the man said, I'm an Egyptian, and i a slave of Amalekite, my master abandoned me. And we raided everywhere, and then we burned the Ziggurat. And David asked him, can you take me to this raiding party? And then the, the Egyptian slave said, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master. And then I'll take you down to them. You know, David's question to Egyptian slave, where do you belong to? Where do you come from? That's the very question the narrator wanted to ask David. David, do you know where do you belong to? David, do you know who you belong to? Where do you come from? The narrator was basically saying, David, you belong to God. You're from Judah. But what are you doing in this Philistine land? How did you get lost? With, from, from your master, did he abandon you? No, you're the one who abandoned your God. You know, this question is a self-reflective and self-learning or heuristic question. And the slave's second answer is another, you know, significant telltale. Because why did he say, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master? If you don't kill me, I'll take him to, my, uh, to, to, to them. You know, that question can help us to see David's reputation in this region preceded before anything else. David's reputation was well known as a man of cruelty and cunningness. Everyone knew that David did not leave anyone alive after his raid. By the way, why did the Amalekite burn down, completely destroy the David's headquarters, Ziggler, whereas they simply raided other areas? Can you see how much Amalekite hatred against David? David's cruel and cunning reputation preceded him. It's a life, David's life in Philistine land embodied this utilitarian in a situational ethic and philosophy that whatever serves me I will use everyone and everything effectively for my own self-interest and that's why the egyptian slave asking david a promise of a protection first through this scared egyptian slave the narrator is asking david a question how in the world, David, you became a, such a cunning, violent, unreliable person. During this week of daily breath, our daily devotion, we reflected on the qualification of an overseer and a deacon. One of a common qualifications of New Testament leaders, church leaders, is a worthy of respect and a good reputation with the outsiders. A good church leader is not someone who is well-respected in the church, but also outside of the church. I think it's a very important thing for us to remember. To reaching out to BIP cannot be done without our general moral standing and ethical excellence in our neighborhood, schools, and the workplaces. Now, let's see the conclusion. This is the last story of David we read in the 1 Samuel. Let us read what happened about the triumphant you know, rescue. Verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind the Bethel Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with him. As David and his men approached, he asked them how they were. For all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, Because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. David replied, No, my brothers, you must not do with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered us into our hands, the raiding party, they came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be same as to what that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. David made this a statue, an ordinance for Israel from that day to this. There were several, there are two layers of a triumph here. There is an immediate triumph. There is a permanent triumph. David's rescue here was a more than a rescue. They hit the greatest financial success they had so far in David's wilderness period. They not only retrieved and recovered their wives and children and belongings, they reaped the great windfall of a Amalekite previous race. Everything Amalekites worked hard for now became David and his men's. And this is an extra blessing they didn't expect. Now, some of David's men claim their portion based on the merit. And they are looking at the whole thing from perspective of a mercenary. David is no longer a mercenary. David did not see this victory from perspective of a mercenary. He saw Perspective, God's mercy and grace. To David, this is what God has done for them. It's not what he did, it's more than that. David saw God's gracious redemption and this victory came from God's grace, so he decided a new way of sharing the fruit of victory. That is not based on merit, but based on God's grace. And mercy to all, he distributed the the, the war Buddhist equally among everyone. Here is the he's a he's a great lesson. If I win, everybody win. If we win, everybody win. That is a true spiritual victory, brothers and sisters. You know, true definition of a success in life is not just my success. My success is a truly God's success, and therefore it's everybody's success. Hallelujah. Are we really fighting for God's success or just my personal success? Whatever we do, we do for God's glory and common good of everybody. Now, there is another permanent triumph here. Let me read verse 26 to 31. When David reaches ziggurat, he sent some of the plunders to the elders of Judah, who were, his, uh, who were his friends, saying that here is a gift for you from the plunder of Lost our enemies. David sent it to those who were in Bethel, uh, Ramos, Negev, and Jetir, and those in error and the Shemoth, and the Eth-Temoah, and the Raquel uh, Raquel, and those in the towns of uh, Jeremelite uh, and Ken- Kenite. And those in Hormon, on Bo and the attack, and the Hebron, and those in all the other places where he and his men have roamed. You know all this. David's sharing of gifts with the outsiders. It's not just you know outsider; it's a Judite. You know what he's pointing up? David is returning to Judah. David is coming back. From land of a Philistine and then back to his home area, hometown, home, home country. That's why he sent gifts. Here David's sojourning and spiritual defection in Philistine land came to an end. And the last, this is the last time we see David in the first Samuel. The next time we see David in the second Samuel chapter 2, we see David going up to Hebron, the main main city of his tribe, Judah. David, you know we've been studying. So this is a conclusion of our summer series. First Samuel chapter twenty-two. We saw David going to Cave of Adullam, and that's where David met four hundred other heartbroken men and formed his community. Now, seven chapters, eight chapters later, we see David's community triumph and victorious and now they are ready to serve God by God's grace David became more than a survivor by God he he started a wilderness alone as a fugitive and he in the middle he received a rattech sort of a army of a 400 discontented men but a few years later David ended up Having a trained warriors, David's band of brothers later was recognized a mighty warrior of David in First Chronicle chapter 11. David had a hard time in the wilderness. He struggled. Sometimes he failed, but he repented. And through all this he was refined, he became a ready to serve God. Just like David in the wilderness, it is my prayer and resolution that Forest and each one of us be refined by God through this pandemic. We continue to focus on God and faithfully follow God's calling for us in our house church ministry, our good Shepherd college, and our daily devotions such as a daily breath or whatever your, your own daily devotions. And God will richly bless us and use us mightily, like a David. I'm, I told you before. What's going to be your testimony after this pandemic? When people ask you, when your children and grandchildren later ask you, what did you do this during that pandemic? I'm going to say, I watched a lot of Netflix. Is that what you're going to say? I pray. Of course, I'm nothing wrong about watching Netflix. People, I watched some Netflix. There's some good movies. Okay, I'm not against Netflix. Point is, I hope we are refined. We are refined. And we're ready. When we come out, we are ready to serve God. I'm going to pray, but right after prayer, we're going to sing a song. I chose a song, special song of dedication today. Yes, I will. This is kind of new song, but it's based on Romans 8.28. God works all things good for those who love Him and called according to His purpose. When we love God in our wilderness, God will never fail to lead us at the end. When we will choose to praise God, choose to lift His praises in our lowest valley, God will never fail us, and He will never be late to bless and use us for His glory. Let's pray.